0: Log Talk Radio Hello, and welcome to
1: Progressive News Network. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is April, Sunday, Sunday, April 12th. That's what today's date is. It's all starting to run together. Um, we've been inside for a long time. It is day 29, wait, 30, three plus seven. No, it's day 30. It is day 30 of my own personal uh, uh, COVID quarantine. I started a little bit earlier than the rest of folks because. Uh, I've got immunity issues dadgummit. <clears throat> And these immunity issues Will Factor in To My presentation, what I wanted to share With you guys tonight, but first uh, Let's talk about The show, we've got <clears throat> Janine Moloff, Who will be here with the justice Report at the bottom of the next hour And She tells me that she is doing a continuation of the discrepancy in treatment during uh, the COVID emergency. So, Janine and I both have been uh, following our different uh, threads, you could say. She's interested in justice issues, and I'm interested in social implications of, you know, different, you know, political events, political stuff, news, items. I generally look at uh, social and cultural interactivity. And Janine tends to look at the justice side. So that's kind of the breakdown you get between uh, my coverage and Janine's coverage. So she's coming at COVID from the justice angle at 830. We also have uh, Rick Spizak, who is continues to report from on the road. He is bringing us a speech by Maggie Herchella, and you will remember Maggie Herchella. She's a friend of the show, been on quite a bit, and she is the environmental activist from South Florida who was hit with a slap suit by um, some very large, deep-pocketed interests, and they wanted to shut her up. They wanted to uh, get her to stop talking about the environmental hazards that she was talking about, and uh, so she gave a speech or, or a talk on First Amendment and freedom of speech, and so we're going to be bringing you a recording of that, so that's uh, um, pretty explosive stuff, and I will get to that either at the bottom of the first hour or the top of the next hour. We'll just see how how all of this goes. Uh so a lot happened this week and I'm still gonna cue to this uh whole COVID thing because that's that's just kind of where where my head is at. But let's not forget that a lot of stuff happened this week. So Bernie Sanders jumped out of the or dropped out of the Uh, presidential race, he suspended his campaign, which is what all of the uh, uh, candidates have done. They've suspended, which allows them to continue to get votes and uh, go to the convention and so on and so forth. So that's, that's the route that Bernie Sanders decided to take this week after the disastrous vote in Wisconsin. The uh, um, coronavirus primary, the pandemic primary, as I've taken to call it. And, you know, that uh, pandemic primary was even after, three weeks after, the last pandemic primaries that we had in Florida, Arizona, and Illinois. Uh, Ohio, who was scheduled to also vote on March 17th, uh, postponed their Election—they're—they're voting in the primary till I think May, sometime in May. Uh, But Florida, Arizona, and Illinois decided to go ahead. Now that primary was on March 17, and and I've uh, I've taken to um, citing this particular factoid because I think it's instructive, and that is that. On March the 9th, there was to be a town hall or forum in Orlando, Florida, which is where I live. And it was to be between Bernie and Joe Biden. Uh, Getting an echo. Let's see if that makes this, see if that clears it up. Uh, So, and this was to be between Bernie and Joe Biden on the 9th, I believe, of March. Uh, this is more than a week before the primary was supposed to occur, and it was deemed too dangerous to have people in an auditorium for a town hall, so they canceled it, and uh, they also canceled. There was a, another debate that was scheduled for Arizona so that there could be an, an Arizona um in on all of the information that had to be cancelled and then they did that uh, stand up thing in Washington D.C. where you just had the candidates and the media in the room together um, socially distanced uh, as well. So um, nine days prior to or eight days prior to the, uh, the primary in Illinois, Arizona, and Florida, it was too dangerous for party elites and media elites to be sitting in the same auditorium together, but they expect us to all go and vote at the senior center, center or you know the church or wherever it is that we go vote. And because it's in the middle of a pandemic and some people are sick, and some people are uh, a lot of people actually who work on the polls during elections are older folks who really can't take a chance on being around a lot of people during a pandemic. So there was, of course, a shortage of people to work the polls all over the uh, three states that had their primaries on March 17th. You saw re- dramatically reduced polling stations, places where people could go vote. So if you were told, hey, go vote at precinct 411, where you always vote or whatever, then it, you would get there. There would be a sign on the door and it would maybe tell you to go to another precinct or another voting place. And, you know, it just kept going and kept going. Uh, in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, which is the largest city uh uh, metropolitan in in Wisconsin, reduced the number of voting places from 180 to five. So you can imagine, you can imagine what a what a complete cluster all of that was. Um, during all of this, and what I find to be really interesting is that during all of this. Uh, Joe Biden got to fly underneath the radar with uh you know oh I think it's safe to vote and you'll practice social distance and everything will be fine. He got a complete pass on that. While Bernie Sanders was saying no uh don't put your life at risk to vote. This is not worth it and you could between the uh Party elite cast of the Democratic Party, you know, the, the, the people who are supporting Joe Biden, and then the folks who are supporting Bernie Sanders, there was a, quite a rift, you know, and so you had the neurotransmitters of the world going out and saying, oh, you're trying to suppress the vote. Well, no, actually, having a, a primary during a pandemic is in itself Suppressing the vote because people who have immune uh, compromised immune system, like myself, we can't go out and vote. If you've got a comorbidity, you know, like let's say you're in the midst of um, trying to fight cancer, you know, you wouldn't want to expose yourself to a life threatening virus. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why why people would not want to go out and and vote just even aside from just being a normal person who just doesn't want to get sick. So that's, that's vote suppression. But what you saw after Wisconsin and during Wisconsin was a, a move to shift the blame from um, party elites, from democratic party elites to the um, Republicans. So, you know, Joe Biden could have said, he could have agreed with, with Bernie Sanders and said, no, this is not a, a good time to be asking people to stand in line in concentrated areas uh, while there's a pandemic raging. He didn't say that. The party didn't come out and say that. Nobody offered any kind of assistance to postpone that primary. Uh, instead, they waited for the uh, Governor, Governor Evers in Wisconsin to try to shut it down and then the GOP in the legislature in Wisconsin uh, circled back around and said no we're not going to let you do that and then I went to the Supreme Court and so on and so forth. Anyway all of this could have been avoided uh, if this had been taken care of within the party which uh, we are told over and over again that primaries are Really just the party deciding Who gets to run That voters really don't have that much to do With it, blah, 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 blah it, The party could have done the right thing And stepped that to the plate there, they didn't And uh, and since then You're seeing all kinds of media uh, uh, Support The Narrative that it was The awful, terrible Republicans, that Forced people to go out and vote during a pandemic, and that just is as my mother would say that is an insult to our intelligence that's not that's not how it happened that's not what happened at all um Bernie gets out of the race this week and you see a uh you see a big movement within uh um progressive circles to either lay blame or to, you know, distance themselves from Bernie. So there was, you know, folks like, um, Jimmy Dore, you know, who are real quick to say, Oh, this is a reflection of all of Bernie's shortcomings. He's a terrible politician. He's a terrible person. And he's blah, 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 Just like totally irrational, um unhelpful forms of uh, uh, you know in, engaging of the issue and uh, and then you get the the usual suspects you know propping that up you know you've got all of the the uh, Tulsi people on, on on one hand that are like you know Tulsi could have done no wrong uh, you know uh, cheerleading this this particular approach on this and um, I don't think any of that's helpful, and, and I think that it's uh, it, it's it's quite damaging. And so you are, uh, I hate to say it, but you are seeing uh, different factions within the progressive ranks of the. Democratic Party or to the side of the Democratic Party at least uh, you're seeing them start to fracture so uh, so rejoice Biden stands (laughs) it's all going according to your plan now uh, what's not going to go according to uh, Biden's plan is um, you know Joe Biden hasn't been hasn't been vetted just hasn't been vetted and uh you know part of the reason why is that other democrats who were running for president were too beholden to the DNC to actually hold Joe Biden's feet to the fire and then you had Bernie Sanders who just is too nice and unwilling to step out of the uh general mode of commodiousness within the Senate to attack his friends. You know, he kept referring to Joe Biden as his friend Joe Biden and blah, 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 blah. Um, issues that Bernie never raised about Biden, uh this is a Brianna Joy Gray tweet from just a little while ago today. Uh you have credible sexual assault allegations, including uh, Tara Reeds and seven other women who came forward last year to talk about this. You have a pattern of unwanted touching, especially with little girls. It's really creepy. And if you wanted to find uh, evidence of that, you could just Google it or just search on Twitter, and you can find thread after thread after thread where people have collected all of these clips these really disturbing clips of, of Joe Biden just fondling, getting all up in everybody's children's shit right there. Um, I'm sorry. That's that's not cool. And if I was one of the parents up there being bestowed in honor by the vice by president and that motherfucker started feeling up my little girl, I think I would just call the whole thing off. You know? I'm sorry, but you know I've watched all those clips, and and they're horrible. The reactions of the parents are horrible, and the reaction of the children is horrible. And I gotta I gotta really hand it to the parents for being the shittiest of them all, because they're there, you know, trying to cozy up to power, watching the vice president feel up their children, and they're just sort of like, man, I don't care. You know just let's just give me my medal, give me my my appointment, and we'll we'll be out of here and and the kids will be none the wiser. they possibly won't need therapy over it, who knows, but you know what's important is that the parents got their um got their recognition or got their appointment or whatever it was, and you know just seeing all of that on display is pretty. Pretty disgusting. Uh, other issues that Bernie never raised about Biden, charisma and Ukraine. And the charisma, the corruption problem in Ukraine also pertains to a different kind of corruption situation where uh, Joe Biden took his son to China on Air Force Two to. Pen some big deals in China So it's not just Ukraine, it's also China uh, These are things that, that Bernie Sanders would not bring up With Joe Biden As a matter of fact, Zephyr Teachout Who is a, uh, an, a Very Effective anti-corruption Crusader Did a an op-ed In The Guardian Outlining um, Hunter Biden's Specifically Hunter Biden's problems uh, With corruption and, uh, and Was shut down So you've got that you got that to look forward to you got that to look forward to Trump going after Biden on corruption And you also have Biden's uh, Lying about his civil rights record And his past history with plagiarism Now it's those lies That Uh forced him out of prior presidential races. He was just laughed off of those races. Just like, why why would anybody believe Mr. Hairblugs over here? Uh why should we believe anything you say when we have these whole strings of complete fabrications where you completely, you know, plagiarize fairly well-known speeches of fairly well-known people enough that people were, were were recognized them. Then he had, you know, uh, problems with all kinds of lies pertaining to his academic achievements and how he got to school and who paid for it and whether he was a scholarship student. It just seems like Joe Biden couldn't tell the truth to save his life during these earlier campaigns. So, so you've got this, this very, extremely unvetted un- Biden, getting ready to go and and let's not forget in cognitive decline Joe Biden is. <laughs> so it's going to be extra entertaining to see that um, with uh, the way that Donald Trump's going to handle that. I, I personally can't wait. you um, also have this spectacle of Joe Biden. Attempting to reach out to the left. And so in an attempt to reach out to the left this week, he said that he's open to uh, lowering the age of Medicare to 60 (laughs) when, when even, you know, the, the, the worst candidate uh, Hillary Clinton Four years ago, was willing to bring that down to 55 or 50. So I mean, you know, it's just it's just a mess, and he's going to get creamed. It's it's going to take some kind of miracle to uh for for people to elect Biden. And you know, honestly, I a lot of people are saying that they don't think that he's going to make it through to the election. That he'll be replaced by Cuomo, or you know, depending on who his his vice presidential pick is really who you're voting for. Is that vice president because he's going to be out of there? You know, I've got some uh, really interesting speculation on who that vice presidential pick will be. You know, we've all heard uh, um, Governor Whitmer. We've heard Globachars uh, is on the list. Here's a name that you haven't heard, and I want you to uh, try to remember this, and that is Val Demings. Val Demings is congressman from Florida's uh, 10th district And uh, she was the house manager of the Russiagate hearings Whatever they called them in the house I'm sure they had something that didn't say Russiagate But that's what it was uh, Maybe you look for her Yeah, woman of color, ex-cop I mean, just just an ex-cop the Democrats are going to be just falling all over themselves and have actually fallen all over themselves to try and find you know the the the, the right places to put Val Demings, you know, because she's she's an ex cop. I mean never mind the fact that she lost her gun and couldn't could never account for it. you know we we're supposed to ignore that particular to um, see. Cop losing her gun. She was she was actually the, the uh, chief of police. So, so so cop cop plus. Her husband is now the mayor of Orange County. So here in Florida we've got um, county mayors and we have city mayors. And in and around Orlando you've got the Orlando City mayor, and then you got the or uh, the Orange County mayor. The Orange County mayor has control of a much larger budget than the Orlando city mayor. Uh, And so there's quite an argument to be made that the county mayor has a lot more um, power than the city mayor. So let's move along. Um that's the, uh, that's the political update for this week there's some other things that, that we can talk about but I really wanted to get to you some of this coronavirus stuff that I have missed and it's all my fault and I'll tell you why in just a All right. That's my flamboyant bumper music. Uh, so I've missed these stories because after last week's episode, uh, I went ahead and created a new episode to talk about these for a PNN Extra during this week. And holy cow, all week I was sick. All week. And it's not corona. Nope. I mean, at least if it was Corona, then then I could maybe I could get some sympathy. But this was none none of that. This is just fever, must be allergies, uh, complete fatigue, inability to complete a thought. I mean, it would have just been a train wreck to to get on to try to do a broadcast through that. So I kept holding on to these two articles, and I thought, you know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ditch these this week. Let's just go ahead and do these damn articles because I think they're that important. So I've got two here. One is "All Roads Lead to Dark Winter." We we um, uh, promoted this last week. This can be found on the thelastamericanvagabond.com. This is Whitney Webb and. Raul Dago is working on this series of articles, and she's got part two up, which is called a killer enterprise, how one of big pharma's most corrupt companies plans to corner the COVID-19 cure market. So, All Roads Lead to Dark Winter, this is about a series of simulations that led up to the anthrax and then to the COVID contagion. And Our other article that I want to share is, is a real oddball. Uh, this is from a blog called Harvard to the Big House, and it's harvardtothebighouse.com. This piece was published on January 31. Uh, it's called logical and technical exploration into the origins of the Wuhan strand, strand of coronavirus. So I think that the first one's a little bit more, um, I think the first one's going to inform the second one. So let's start there. Uh, What we have in this logical and technical exploration of the origins of the Wuhan strain is you have a writer and they are um, working together with uh, Dr. Carl Sorotkin, who's a a retired professional scientist with dozens of peer-reviewed publications and 30 years of experience in genomic sequencing and analysis who worked at the theoretical biological di- biology division of the Las Alamos National Laboratory and later helped design several ubiquitous bio informi- informatic, informatic software tools. Um, and... So you got this biology guy, you know, who worked on different uh, um, genomic sequencing and virology. And you have that person teaming up with a former uh, NSA counterterrorism analyst. And this collaboration is what created this paper right here. So this isn't... This isn't, you know, Mad Dog 2020, 66, you know, on some message board from twenty-five years ago, uh you know, just musing off into the uh, ether. These are, you know, folks who who know their who know their thing and they're they're presenting their uh position on it. Um let me say again, let me just underscore this. This was posted on January 31, and right now it's April the 12th. So this is two whole months, two and a half months uh, ago. And there was this much information I'm getting ready to share with you on the origin of the coronavirus. Now, the origin, let's just talk for a second about what the origin of this Wuhan strain of the coronavirus, why is it important? And why would it be of interest that we would wanna talk about the origin when there's so many other ways to think about a virus that are also interesting. So you've got you know, what it does to you or the um, social implications, like how many people are being affected and what's the fatality rate and what's the infection rate and all of that. Um, All of that's being covered uh, uh, elsewhere, and the reason why I want to bring forth this, this discussion about the origins is that I think this is where a lot of people are getting tripped up with, first of all, if you don't know the origin of something, then you can't completely know what it is that you're dealing with. And it's that uncertainty that number one allows people to play fast and loose with the facts, and number two uh, feeds into a lot of fear mongering and you know paranormal par- paranoia blossoming. Okay, so so if you don't understand why something exists or how it came to be, then that opens the door to all kinds of dare we say, conspiracy theorizing, you know, bad reasoning, you have uh, people, it it makes it easier for people to insert their own personal feelings into a certain subject area. So with coronavirus, with COVID-19, not knowing specifically what the origins are you have at least two very divergent strains of thought and on the one hand you've got people who are saying it's all made up it's way overblown it's it's a it's a, it's a globalist uh, uh attempt to to uh wipe out small business and make everyone poor um and so on and so forth that that it's some kind of nefarious plot to take away our civil liberties and our small businesses so that's on one side um that is uh that is the overblown theory then you have the bioweapon theory you have this idea that there's also circulating that is uh that this this COVID-19 was a bioweapon that uh, could, have been, could have originated from the Chinese government as an offensive measure. Uh, you had people speculating as to whether this was a bioweapon that was created with the United States helping China and maybe that the US-China collaboration, Was on a bioweapon, and that this is the result. And both of those kind of uh, um, suggest that if it's a bioweapon, then it was released intentionally. Um, This article talks about why they don't think that that is the case either. So, if on the one hand you've got, oh, it's just a bunch of hooey, it's just a hoax, we don't have to worry about it, you know, then you've got people. Behaving in ways. I mean, if if, if you're going to believe all that, if you're going to believe those speculations, then you are going to behave in a way that reflects those beliefs. You know, maybe maybe you're going to think that you don't have to do social distancing. Maybe you think that you know that there really isn't a contagion that you have to worry about. Uh, that could lead down down that road. Conversely, if someone uh, spuriously Maintains that this was a Bioweapon unleashed From one global power To another uh, You know, However that would happen Then That could possibly lead to other Global strategic um, uh, Positioning That would also be bad And would also be stupid because we don't want to start A world war over Um over a virus, uh, especially if it wasn't um, a bioweapon. Now, people who think it's a bioweapon, and people who think it's a hoax, they have good reasons for thinking this, right? We've, we're we not told, we don't have good information from the Chinese government, first of all, we don't have good information from our government, and we certainly don't have good information from uh, from investigative journalists, there's not enough out there, there Journalists are being laid off, even during this pan- pandemic. Journalists are being laid off in droves right now. So, investigative journalism is is uh, probably best described as a um, very expensive hobby that some people are um, uh, like to indulge, and the very very lucky few are able to practice investigative journalism, especially investigative journalism in uh, a scientific context that is useful to people at large. Um, And you've got models, business models, journalism business models that are starting to emerge that reflect this. So you're starting to see outfits like ProPublica and there's another one in Florida. uh, Its name escapes me right now, where you've got journalism being taken into a nonprofit realm rather than a supported by advertising kind of endeavor the way that it, it has been up until very recently. There's some very good weekly papers, actually, that have uh, gone to a nonprofit model. The uh, Metropulse, which was a really good newspaper, weekly paper in Knoxville, Tennessee, went um not-for-profit and uh, have been doing pretty good with that model. So, the logical and technical exploration of the origins of the Wuhan strain of coronavirus. Uh, I think this is an important article because I think that we are, on the one hand, we have either too much panic, uh, we have panic over the wrong things. We've got paranoia, paranoia over the wrong things, and we're having trouble modulating what it is that we think and how it is that we should respond. And I think that this particular article helps us through uh, helps us through some of these some of these problems. So the basic question here is. Uh, is the Wuhan strain of the coronavirus the result of a naturally emergent mutation Um, or is it a bioengineered strain? And whether it's one or the other is going to make quite a bit of difference in how we respond to this particular contagion. Um, It is, spoiler alert, it is the... uh, it is the assumption or the conclusion of this particular paper that the Wuhan strain of coronavirus that we call COVID nineteen was most likely accidentally released accidentally released in China. That it, that it probably wasn't a bioweapon attack, that it that it probably didn't uh, evolve on its own. It wasn't a uh, you know jumped from a bat to a pangolin to a to a human. And we're going to go over the reasons why that would be the case. Um, one of the interesting things, and, there, and there's a couple of there's a couple of vocabulary words that I want to go over. Uh, the first is uh, when you're when you're doing reading about this virus, you're going to see this. Uh, term used a lot. B is in boy BSL4. that's biosafety lab level 4. Uh, BSL4s can be uh, government um, organizations can be, can be government facilities like we like we have in Fort Dietrich or they can be public part, private partnerships like what you had in Wuhan. Uh, you've got in uh, – there are not that many BSL-4s, the kinds that would handle these kinds of viruses. There are not that many in the world. Most of them are controlled by the United States, but there's – but uh, the U.K. is is really close behind. You know, Port and Bounds is, is a famous uh, – Virology lab and all different kinds of, you know, working with all different kinds of biological agents. Um, no, I just lost my paper. Here it is. Um, so here we have in this paper, they lay all this out. They say, um, <clears throat> We're considering whether the Wuhan strain of the coronavirus is the result of a naturally emergent mutation against the possibility that this was a bioengineered strain. Now, if it's a bioengineered strain, it could be a a bioweapon or it could be just, you know, the regular work that people do in virology trying to come up with uh, uh, ways to manufacture vaccines. So there's lots of legitimate research that goes on in these BSL-4s that have to do with um, identifying vaccines. Now, here's the rub. Uh, That is known as, at least in in the context of a BSL-4, of a lab that that does some military and and some commercial, um, that is known as dual use. And we've had... We've had restrictions on biological agents since the 80s. Doing this kind of research uh, to the point where it is it is against the law, at least within the United States, or, or against uh, the um, uh, treaties, to be do, to be using. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to say this. It's. You can't just do straight up biological weapons, okay? You have to be doing dual use. In other words, you have to be looking for a vaccine, and in order to be getting a vaccine, generally people are also doing that biological research. So, uh, for for a research. Facility to be legitimate as far as the United States is concerned. It has to have this dual use function um, We're not at least uh, Overtly we're not overtly just doing straight-up uh, Manufacturing and identifying of, of bugs that will just kill people. That's not the way that that they're supposed to be doing this They're supposed to be doing dual use research and um, And that means a vaccine on one hand with the contagion on the other. And the vaccine is supposed to be um, brought to bear on, on the contagion. In these kinds of research environments, what is being looked for very often is something called gain of function. A gain of function is when you engineer a virus to do something that it hadn't done before. So let's say you had a virus that was super, super fatal, but doesn't, isn't very contagious, okay? So like it's gonna kill everybody it comes in contact with, it just is really hard for it to come in contact with people. A gain of function would be to splice that virus with something else that is more contagious so that then you have a very contagious, very fatal uh, contagion. So for instance, SARS is very fatal, but SARS is not very contagious and so uh, it it, it could be contained and it was easy to be contained, much easier than, than COVID because the symptoms were uh, uh, happened at the same time that the people became contagious. Unlike with coronavirus or COVID, you can be, with COVID, you can be a carrier and you can be contagious and not show any symptoms. So, it looks like, and from this paper, and, and I'll, I'll get down to the part where, where they talk about this particular kind of gain of function, uh, it looks like what we have with COVID is a SARS kind of infection that is, that is very fatal uh, with an increase in the contagiousness of it. And I think this is where a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that this virus isn't dangerous because the the rate of fatality isn't nearly as high as SARS. Uh, it's a relatively low rate of a, a, a relatively low death rate. It takes a lot of people being infected with it to get a lot of deaths. But the thing is, is that it's super highly contagious. And we also have the uh, other function that it can be contagious before it's it's evident, um, but before people are showing symptoms. So I want you to understand gain of function. I want you to understand dual use and why why we talk about dual use in biological. I understand that bioengineering does not necessarily equal weapons manufacturing, okay, that we do a ton of completely legitimate bioengineering where we're trying to cure diseases and we're trying to use viruses we use viruses to try and cure other um, diseases, and so that's the, some of that comes into play, and I'm going to try to avoid some of the some of the jargon and the science and this um, which is going to be. A challenge. Okay, so jumping right in, um, COVID is the way that COVID emerged in in Wuhan is is really really weird. Okay, because supposedly COVID is a bat virus. All right, so you got those those uh, horseshoe bats that we know carry this kind of coronavirus. The thing about the bats and the things about the thing about bats in China in in particular is that the bats are hibernating in the winter they actually hibernate so they really actually weren't around in in Wuhan despite the the um, implication of the Wuhan wet market and if you don't know what a wet market is, a wet market is where you go to purchase all different kinds of Exotic animals, like they might sell snakes next to a cage with bats, or next to a cage with a pangolin, or blah 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 blah. And so the the uh, um, easy way that people have have thought about this is that oh well, you're in Wuhan wet market and you got a pangolin that just got shot on by a horseshoe bat. So then like immediately you got this virus emerge and that's how it emerged was because the bat peed or shot on the pangolin and then the pangolin got some kind of virus. And then that pangolin must have uh, given the virus to someone else at the wet market. Maybe the person who purchased the pangolin to uh, um, for some sort of traditional medicine cure of some sort. Now, that's all fine and good, except it ignores the fact that um zoonotic uh, changes take years to happen so you know there's there's a movie called contagion that uh that came out a few years ago very interesting someone on on Twitter recognized that there are whole passages in the movie where the c d c guy in the movie. Uh, His uh, his lines have completely been lifted by um, The virus guy who is always up there with uh, Fauci Fauci pretty much lifted the dialogue of the CDC guy in the movie contagion is basically lifted his, his lines from, from that guy. We'll talk about Fauci at another time. I think he's an an interesting guy and he's popped up quite a few times with the um, different important contagions in world history, HIV being one of them. But um, when a virus manages to infect a new species of host, it's known as a zoonotic jump, a process that generally takes months or even years to complete. The first stage when a virus infects one individual in a new host species, which is typically a dead end the first time it happens, since there is no way for the virus to be adapted to a different species biology. So, so it takes, it. It's not like the movie Contagion makes it sound like so like in Contagion some bats peed on some pigs and the pigs wound up in a, in a restaurant and then that's supposedly how that contagion uh, originated and how it was spread. But the way that, that these jumps, these zoonotic these jumps happen it's It's not that easy, you don't just get peed on by a bat, and then you know then the pangolin is you know carrying a deadly virus that could wipe out humanity. That is not how it happens um, You have the problem of when a, a a virus jumps species it often it often hits a dead end, it takes a lot more jumps for it to actually become. a a viable virus that that can hop around and infect more people, it has to get good at being a virus in a new host, in in other words. Um, These these little uh, endemics are known to fizzle out pretty quickly. Uh, It's only when you get to the final stage, uh, when a zoonotic jump is considered complete, um, is when there is a sustained Host to host transmission in a new species, and so you can kind of start to see how it might take months or years for something like this to emerge. It it, 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 it's if it happens in nature, it's going to be an accident. It's probably going to lead to a dead end. It's got to start and stop a few times. It's not going to emerge fully, you know. Uh, dangerous to humanity, just right off the bat. That just doesn't happen right off the bat. (laughs) Um, This particular BSL-4 in Wuhan, biosafety lab level four in Wuhan, was reported to have particularly sloppy field research methods. Um, And (laughs) interestingly, uh, scientists from Wuhan had reported being bled and peed on by local bats that host coronaviruses remarkably similar to the Wuhan strain of COVID-19. There's also been reporting um, that research animals were smuggled out of the labs and were sold on the streets. So here's a problem with the, and and Wuhan is the only BSL-4 in China. Okay. The Wuhan Biosafety Lab Level 4 is considered to be at least 20 times less safe than the uh, biosafety labs in Europe and the United States. So kind of the way it goes is that U.S. US biosafety labs are kind of iffy. European labs are much more buttoned down. And Chinese lab is just wild, wild west, like animals come and go. They have a permeable entrance and exit. People take them home and eat them. They take them out on the street and sell them. There's all kinds of problems with safety and uh, security at the Chinese lab, uh, you know, which as we know with capitalism, that makes these kinds of facilities more attractive to different kinds of um, uh, business. You know, if your business model is to be a little sketchy with regard to uh, um, how, how you do your work, then you, you want to do work in, in Wuhan and not in, uh, let's say, um, France or Spain where there's a more oversight of their labs. Now, research in this particular lab was being sped up to quickly finish before Johns Hopkins's Event 201, which was a viral simulation that happened in uh, October of 2019, and this Eventual One is also uh, manifest. It's also part of the story that Whitney Webb and Raúl García look at in All Roads Lead to Dark Winter. Uh, Eventual One was a, a a simulation that looked at um, the containment, how you would contain a global pandemic research at that lab could have also been hurried up due to deadlines before the impending chinese new year the timing of these events points to an increased human error and not a globalist conspiracy all right so and this is something that that i haven't mentioned so you've got you got the people who say that um, that the whole thing is overblown that uh, powers that be want to steal our um, our small businesses and um, curtail our civil liberties. Well, what when most people are are appealing to those kind of sentiments, what they're talking about in the behind is a, in the behind behind everything. What they're what they're really talking about is um, a globalist conspiracy. They're not really they're not really seriously you know talking about the stuff at hand. It's this kind of fear mongering about uh, Agenda 21, you know, which is a depopulation uh, fantasy that a lot of right wingers have. Um, and you've got this whole you know fear that is that has been around since at least the uh late 80s and early 90s about the new world order the nwo and you it, it's really hard to find information uh about this particular virus that hasn't been uh uh Co-opted by people who have these different weird agendas So I'm trying to bring this to you in a way that isn't tainted with those uh, with those kinds of sentiments Um, Lots of interesting things with this Wuhan uh, um, Biosafety labs in a predictable turn Uh, There was an article that that was removed from the National Natural Science Foundation in China, uh, which said, in summary, someone was entangled with the evolution of 2019 novel coronavirus. In addition to origins of natural recombination and intermediate hosts, the killer coronavirus probably originated from a laboratory in Wuhan, from this laboratory in Wuhan. So, so this is a uh this is an article in a um a, a nature journal or a a biology journal and it's talking about uh way back in in february it's it's talking about how uh Wuhan was covering up and um as they sent out a memo forbidding discussion of, quote, an unknown pneumonia in Wuhan after ordering the destruction of all related lab materials a day earlier and making it abundantly clear that the Chinese government knew about this outbreak long before they took any steps to contain it or made any public announcement. I just want to say that again. Furthering the appearance of a cover-up, Back on January 2nd, the Wuhan Institute of Virology's director sent out a memo forbidding discussion of an unknown pneumonia in Wuhan. And then they ordered the destruction of all lab materials, uh, making it abundantly clear that, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's that's, that's pretty striking. This is happening at the end of uh, December, early January. Again, efforts have been bolstered by uh, possible collusion from American scientists, some of which are detailed below. Uh, There's some people of interest in here, but I'm not going to confuse you with names because there's there's just a lot of names. And this is interesting, too. Uh, if nothing else, it is wildly irresponsible to speak out against, against the possibility that the virus got out of a lab when a natural origin has not been conclusively demonstrated. Again, that's from this article that I've been reading from on the uh, uh, logistical and technical analyses. And we've been presuming all along that this is a... A virus that naturally occurred from this wet market, it's a zoo, zoonotic uh, transfer, which, you know, like like I just said, it's almost impossible to create a zoonotic transfer in, you know, just in a month's worth of time, months, two, mo- two months worth of time. Those things take a lot of time, sometimes years. Um, and this writer says that, uh, that this statement in the Lancet is either incompetence, or is meant to be a smokescreen for the wanton hubris and greed that have fueled the dual use or gain of function research detailed below as one possible related project, which may have overlapped with this one. Coronaviruses have been seen as a viable vector for an HIV vaccine for years, a project with hundreds of millions of dollars dangling over it. And that's, that's some of the research that I was mentioning earlier is that, uh, uh, Coronaviruses have been used to kind of transport, to transport information into viruses and to try and uh, find cures for things. So the coronaviruses have been um, uh, helpful in these laboratory settings in the past. And I can understand how, uh, uh, why people might be bioengineering with these particular uh, strains of viruses because they found a way to use them as little taxi cabs or little, you know, Uber drivers to to um, to rewrite information in in other viruses. Um, there are a lot of reasons for uh, for arguing that this is. Uh, an accident rather than a bioweapon released on purpose and rather than a naturally occurring uh, disease. Um, If the idea that just maybe this thing came from a lab had been part of the national dialogue from the start, wouldn't everyone have been much more cautious and open to social distancing and other limitations once the need arose? And this is kind of the uh this is kind of the uh, uh crux of it all for me because I see that there is a pretty large disconnect between the way that Donald Trump responded to this in the beginning to where he's responding to it now and it doesn't make sense. And this is why I think you've got a lot of people out there saying, Oh, it's a hoax, or or it's all blown out of proportion and we really don't have to worry about it, is because I think that the way the way that I'm interpreting our government government's response to this suggests to me that our government knows more about this than we're being told. Uh, it is not normal for Donald Trump and you saw this with, the, with his very first reactions to this uh, virus. It's not normal for him to take anything like this seriously. Oh, it's going to blow over. It's going to disappear like magic. It'll be like a miracle. We'll be over it by Easter. Today's Easter. We're not over it. Um, I think the reason why uh, folks are uh, as frightened of this as they are in the in the largest sense is I think that some people know something about the origin of this that they're not telling us. And so if you know, if there is knowledge that this was part of bioengineering that ac- accidentally got released from a, a laboratory, then the people would also know more about the virulence of the actual contagion. They would know more about Uh, It's contagiousness. They would know more about uh, what it does in the long term, and I think that that would go a long way to explaining why it is that uh, we're having the reaction that we are to this particular contagion. Okay, so there's lots of reasons. There's uh, an argument for uh, the lab accident. Uh, And some of this reminds me a lot of a Whitney Webb's piece uh so so you've got these coincidences like in 2002 uh 18 years ago stony brook the university of stony brook first assembled a dna virus from scratch building a polio virus and providing proof of concept for the creation alteration and manipulation of dna virus genomes two years prior a separate team had already built a simpler RNA virus from scratch, choosing to engineer a coronavirus from the ground up and even swapping out its vital spike protein genes to make it more infectious. And this is something you've heard over and over with COVID-19 is that it's uh, it's got these spike proteins that have made it uh, way more contagious. And what you're seeing here is that this is out of sequence that this had to have been engineered. They chose to engineer coronavirus from the ground up, swapping out its vital spike-like protein genes to make it more infectious. A generation earlier, artificially enhancing selection by intentionally infecting countless series of lab animals, blah, 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 blah. This Franken genome has a mysterious, untraceable genetic parentage and a clear unnatural origin, appearing to be the product of Quote, sequential passing in an animal reservoir, which was determined by its vast genetic distance from any extant strain of flu. So, this is something that you see in the science literature is that this particular virus is way off in its own clade. Now, clade is like a branch of a family tree. Okay. So, so uh when they say this is off in its own clade, what they're saying is they can't find the other parts of the tree that connect it to the rest of its genetic sequence. It shouldn't exist. It shouldn't, something this far off of the, the, the family tree shouldn't be existing just yet. It's jumped a, a, a couple of different iterations that it shouldn't have jumped. And that seems to, that's unnatural. That shouldn't exist. Um, lone example of its kind. It doesn't clump together with other coronaviruses. Why is, why is there a scientific consensus that the former leaked out of a lab while many exist that the latter is entire, entirely natural? Now what they're talking about here is um, H1N1 swine flu. H1N1 that appeared in 1977 became the poster child for a moratorium against gain of function research. Um, a ban was in place for years but was recently lifted by the American government. In in the the case of H1N1, it wasn't a question of if it had escaped from a research laboratory, only whether it had been designed as part of a weapons system or designed as part of a vaccine trial. So we knew that the 1977, what became known as the Russian flu, we know that that escaped from a uh, uh, an, an engineering laboratory setting. And we responded in kind, you know, that was taken very, very seriously because we knew that it had escaped. We also know that SARS escaped from a couple of times from uh, labs in China. So so these these kinds of things are not they're not unheard of. They're actually common. Yeah, you know, this is why you have security measures. We talked about the zootic zoonotic um jumps. For a virus to find the right mutations that will allow it to prosper in a new host species. It has never been known and it just never magically happens all at once, that you get a virus the way that coronavirus, the way that COVID-19 has appeared to be just really kind of perfectly suited to uh, to uh, do its thing. You know, It just doesn't naturally hop from a bat to a pangolin to a human like that. But there are ways that these viruses do jump with those gains of functions so and we're going to talk about that right now. Um, so we talked about the hibernating bats. There was just an article released today that started appearing today at least where um, it's become known that this particular biosafety lab in Wuhan was actually working with bats that were caught 100 kilometers pretty close to, um, to the Wuhan lab. but People were working with horseshoe nose bats in this particular lab that had been caught in China out near near the labs. And this is a, a bunch of research that has been done with a couple of scientists in the lab at Wuhan who have also come to the United States and done work on these bats, these the horseshoe nose bats in at UNC, University of North Carolina. Uh, so there's a so there's a paper trail of papers that have been written and published having to do with this particular kind of um, uh, contagion uh, uh, as regards in, in 2018, a study looking for past infections by bat coronaviruses in Wuhan. So you got two years ago in 2018, uh, we were looking for past infections of bat coronaviruses in Wuhan and found no evidence whatsoever that anyone there had ever been infected by one at all, by any of these coronaviruses from bats, making the idea that these viruses have been circulating there entirely absurd. So going back to that zoonotic jump, in order for that zo- zoonotic jump to be valid, you have to be able to find where these bat viruses have been jumping around and, and have been infecting people and they can't find that. But what, but what you do find, at least in a laboratory environment, is passing these viruses through ferrets. And ferrets are super freaking important, not just because they're adorable weasel-like critters, which they are, um, but ferrets have uh, ACE receptors in their lungs the way that humans do. So there's something that's very similar about ferret lungs that is similar to human lungs. And that's this ACE receptor. And you've probably read, especially if you're on a high blood pressure medicine like lisinopril, you've probably read that ACE receptors figure into this whole coronavirus nonsense, right? Now, the reason for that is they, they, they've found with the, um, people infected in China, that there was a a higher incidence of people with uh, high blood pressure who were being infected. Now were they infected because they were on lisinopril, which is an ACE inhibitor that that affects those those ACE receptors, which is what what I'm going to talk about here in a second. This is why this thing is so contagious, by the way. you only get there through ferrets. You can only get this gain of function through ferrets. So so, so, this thing did not pass through a pangolin. It didn't pass through an animal that doesn't have ACE receptors. It had to pass through some kind of critter that has a similar lung function that, uh, the, that humans do in order to gain this in order for this gain of function to be achieved. So um, about a decade ago, two separate research teams successfully tweaked the genome of H5N1 bird flu in just two spots and then passed it through ferrets until it became both airborne and pathogenic to mammals, creating a virus that could make the deadly 1918 pandemic look like a pesky cold. <laughs> the studies examining SARS-CoV-2's infectivity in ferrets found that it spreads readily among them and also appears airborne in that animal model, lending support to the idea that fer- ferrets were used for its serial passage. Okay, so so if you pass this, what i saying is, if you pass this virus through ferrets because they've got that those ACE receptors in their lungs, then that is. Likely where you get this gain of function, where the dang thing goes airborne, and um, and its infectivity is heightened or increased, um, and this is where you've got this this coincidence with the the research at the uh, U- University of North Carolina. So this is a real coincidence. By 2015. Uh, Conducting research that was met with an enormous amount of concern, scientists at UNC had successfully created a chimeric SARS-like virus by altering the viral genome of a Chinese bat coronavirus, they altered their spike protein genes. Sequences that code for the spikes that poke out of the surface of the the virus, which I know you guys have heard about. Those little spike proteins are uh, indicative of this particular virus, and they're they're unique. They shouldn't be there. Um, In this case, making the bioengineered coronavirus incredibly contagious. It's these spike proteins that um, allow the virus to latch on to things. This is what's making it more contagious. Uh, so while, and, and we mentioned this earlier, so while coronavirus isn't super, super lethal, it's not like 40% of the people who get coronavirus die, it's that almost 80% of people are going to get coronavirus. So if it has a really low fatality rate, uh, you're still going to get a lot of deaths because it's infecting everybody. It's this contagiousness that makes this particular virus so troublesome and so dangerous. It's that everybody could possibly get it. Um, so the COVID death rate isn't the isn't the fear. It's the it's the contagiousness. There's all again more more coincidences with uh, U.S. and Chinese research on these coronaviruses. Um, in late January, right as the pandemic was blooming, uh, a doctor claimed in an interview that people should be more concerned with the, the seasonal flu. This was Dr. Ralph Barrick, B-A-R-I-C. And uh, so late January, he's giving an interview and he's saying, hey, you know, maybe you guys ought to be a little bit more concerned about seasonal flu this year. No reason. No reason at all. Um Despite having personally overseen the controversial engineering of a hyper virulent strain of bat virus just a few years ago. So, this is the same guy who at UNC had been conducting these trials with the horse, she knows bats and the coronavirus. Immediately, discounting the burgeoning outbreak of an unknown coronavirus as a non event. As Dr. Barrick did, um, seems particularly troubling for someone who had trained two Chinese scientists on how to make hyper virulent coronaviruses. Um, so this <laughs> this guy. So here's a coincidence. This guy goes into the media. He's done all this research on bat coronaviruses and he tells the media hey look what you really might want to be worried about this year is a super violent strain of the flu and it's definitely not going to be a bat virus so don't worry about the flu. I mean that just that just has all kinds of problems written all over it for me. Um, the Wuhan strain of COVID-19 is 34 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. Um, so even though while we're saying that the lethality is less than SARS, it's it's still more than the flu. Um, Barrick's research, and this is what's interesting, Barrick's research on, on the bats uh, involved isolating coronavirus from civets, which are like, big cats, and then passing it through mammalian ACE2 receptor cells that were grown in a lab from kidney and brain samples. Serial passage through host cell lines instead of entire hosts, which imparted a strong affinity to ACE2 receptors and presumably created an airborne strain of coronavirus. So... Here's something that a lot of people don't understand, and that is that if you're going to do these these this kind of research, you don't necessarily need to have a lab full of monkeys and ferrets and civets and all that. All you need are the cell lines to you know run these uh, uh, viruses through. When I was in when I was in college, one of my college work study program uh, jobs was. <laughs> washing test tubes in the in, in the uh uh biology the, the uh, bio communicate we called it the biocommunications building but it was really the uh um, that's where they were studying different kinds of diseases and stuff and i was just looking for an easy job that didn't require much thinking cuz i'd done a couple of jobs at that point for college work study that were Really eating into my uh, time being a student, you know they were requiring a little bit more of me than you actually needed on the job in order to be effective. And I understand time for it. so I was like, screw it, I'm just gonna wash test tubes. And the kinds of things that I would see in these test tubes was it was exactly this, where they were using different kinds of, of cells and uh, you know running trials through all of these different cells. So you know we didn't have a lab full of, of monkeys; we had a lab full of fingernails, essentially, um, just to uh, bring up a particular gross finding that I found in the test tubes at one point. Um, So now we have an airborne strain of the coronavirus, which could have very easily just been passed through these cell lines, not having to go through monkeys and pangolins and stuff. Um, And if the cells that they used to develop this strain, if they were derived from kidneys and brains, um, if that's what was used for serial passage of the development of COVID-19, that might help explain its affinity for attacking the kidneys and brains of its human hosts. So we don't talk a lot about the way COVID actually kills people, which is fine with me because it's horrible. Um, But there are different systems uh, that are affected that actually shouldn't be affected. You know, there's there shouldn't be neurotoxicity from from the flu, but that's what you have here. And as a matter of fact, you've got people uh, complaining of losing their sense of taste and their sense of smell uh, as as an early indication of of infection. As a matter of fact, some people uh, that's the very first thing that they notice is that they can't smell and they can't taste. Well, that is. Often associated with neurotoxicity. That is not associated with you know just having a steppy nose and not being able to uh smell. That's not the way that works. A friend of mine had uh, lost his sense of smell for many, many years, and it turned out that he had a brain tumor. Uh these are these are um whole sense of taste. It's a big, crazy deal. It's it's not something that should be ignored or pushed to the side when we're talking about this particular uh, uh, contagion. Scientists had, had expressed concern about China's ability to safely monitor its BSL-4 lab in Wuhan since it opened in 2017. This lab had not been open for very long. So just two years prior to 2019 when event 201 happened and ostensibly is when, you know, if if this was an escapee from the lab, it probably escaped in late 2019 rather than early 20, uh, 2020. Um, And open, so, so they talk about how different cultural approaches are important to maintaining safety, the highly hierarchical uh, uh, Chinese culture where you don't question authority and you just you know, do what you're told or whatever, that's not really good for safety because in order for there to be safety, you need people who feel comfortable speaking up and going, hey, I think that that's a mistake over there and people could get hurt. So people need to be empowered to be able to uh, correct some of these uh, um, safety issues. And that just doesn't exist in the culture with the um, especially within government researchers in in Wuhan, there was no contact with the wet market. So the patient zero uh, the patient that they've identified as patient zero, so far, we have not been able to place them at the wet market. so you've already you've got some some evidence that's emerging that is a problem for the wet market. Uh, hypothesis for this to have evolved from the wet market naturally uh, we already talked about how it would have taken a lot of time to do it that uh, just couldn't happen and and now we're finding that we can't ID the animals that it supposedly uh Uh, was serialized through so since its discovery scientists have been unable to fully determine the zoological origins of COVID-19 initially thought to have passed through snakes it is now agreed upon that it's mostly a bat origin. Um, The inability to derive an exact zoological source is exactly what would be expected if the virus had been artificially engineered to target humans, as UNC you know, University of North Carolina already has, um, this doesn't prove an artificial nature, but it is consistent with one. So, as you're going through all of these claims, and you're going through all of these different uh, uh, critiques and the material that that follows alongside of this technical material, you have to keep asking yourself. <clears throat> is this consistent? Is this particular data point, is this consistent with a, with a, um, natural transmission? Is it consistent with a, uh, dual use vaccine program, or is it consistent with a, um, <clears throat> a weapons program? And so, what these writers are finding is they go down these lists and they keep asking themselves these questions, you know, is this consistent? Is this necessary and sufficient? You know, just going, going down the line. What they're finding more and more of is that it's more consistent with an accidental release. The accidental release is associated with a program that is a dual use program. And that's so important to understand because dual use means that, Uh, that they're actually doing bioweapons research, but they're doing it under the auspices of looking for a vaccine. And so the whole point of all of this, once you get down to the end, is uh, we need to make an effort, a better effort to shut down these dual-use programs. Hell yeah. Do do the... um, Do the research that's needed to uh, cure disease. We've got to keep doing that. But we need an immediate moratorium and an international moratorium on all dual use, gain of function research that must be instated and all existing experimentation must be autoclaved. Because only for greed and hubris have we been, have we ever been served by attempting this type of genetic manipulation. So these are the words of the, um, of the collaboration with Dr. Carl Surikin and the unnamed uh, anonymous NSA counterterrorism analyst at the end of all of this. They're saying we've got to have an immediate moratorium on dual use gain of function research and the stuff that we've already created, we've got to burn that in the autoclave. We've got to get rid of it because it's just too dangerous. Humanity does not need a vaccine against uh, H- HIV derived from a coronavirus, nor do we need to be tinkering with genetic material that holds the potential to wipe a significant percentage of us off the face of the earth. Um, so that's keeping ahead, way, way, way far because, oh, my God, this has taken a lot of time to, to unravel. There is a lot more in here. You've got fun and showing up at UNC. You've got specific affinity to the ACE2 receptor. You have, um, oh, and this is very interesting right here. You have... Here's a particular researcher, Li Shi, and you will see this person named over and over again in the research on this particular virus, seems to have returned to Wuhan at the same time at some point past 2016, specifically to the Wuhan Institute of Virology's Disease Engineering Technical Research Center. Um, Since she then appears in this 20. 19 paper September 2019 paper on the human behaviors most likely to lead to a bat-borne virus exposure in southern China, and also in the paper claiming that this coronavirus was of bat origin, which was peculiarly submitted in coordination with the announcement of the outbreak. Um, and uh, she also appears in this uh, in a in a preprint of an article on the current outbreak of COVID-19. So this researcher, Z-H-E-N-G-L-I, Zingli, she S-H-I, this particular researcher is in North Carolina working on uh, grants from NIH and working on grants with USAID. Uh, she had $665,000 from NIH and from USAID to viruses. So there's a direct chain of expertise tying the already successful bioengineering of a virulent bat-based coronavirus at University of North Carolina directly to the BSL in Wuhan. And there's a money trail of U.S. and U.K. funding of this research that. Uh, travels Between UNC and Wuhan and I'm going to leave it right there For this week And I can't believe it took that long to go through All of this and I still didn't get through all of it But Give me just a second we are going To bring uh, We're going to bring Janine on in just a second But first the oh, girl went
0: back to Napoli Because she The native dances and the charming songs, but wait a minute—something's wrong. Mambo, mambo
1: italiano, mambo. All right, Janine, Mala, are you there? Yes, I am, Brooke. Uh, nice to hear your
0: voice. Uh, you tonight too. I'm going to be talking. At, thanks. Tonight I'm going to talk about COVID-19 and systemic racism in the United States. And you would think that there isn't a correlation, but there is. The COVID-19 pandemic has struck every part of society, but not all factions are affected equally. While Boris Johnson was admitted to the IC unit, ICU unit for his COVID infection. Many middle-class and lower-income people are left to scavenge or beg for medical assistance. This isn't the fault of doctors or nurses. This is the fault of a medical system that is increasingly ruled by corporate overlords. This fact is so pervasive that we named this series, hashtag, not dying for Wall Street, in acknowledgement of the stranglehold big-money corporations and patent trolls hired by big banks have on our medical care. From a dire shortage of PPE, or personal protective equipment, such as N95, respirator masks and ventilators, to hospitals cutting staff at this time to bare bones while threatening nurses who dare to expose these dangerous corporate moves, we have witnessed how this systemic denial of equal health care exists in our nation. The communities that have been most severely affected are lower income workers with employers who refuse to allow safe social distancing or proper PPE. And of those communities, no group is impacted more severely than communities of color, especially the black community. So I'm going to start talking first about the nurses, especially in Detroit. Detroit is majority black population. The nurses on the front lines are being attacked by corporate hospital administrations, and in Detroit in, in particular and this was uh, an article from daily cause the headline was michigan er nurses ordered to leave hospital for refusing to work under unsafe patient load and this is these nurses are saying that in some instances there are only two nurses to care for 26 patients including 10 of those patients being on ventilators so metro detroit hospitals this is not the burbs this is not in other places of Michigan where Betsy DeVos lives. This is Metro Detroit. They were overwhelmed with the surge of coronavirus patients. And local media, including uh, something called Click on Detroit, documented what is really just a chaotic situation, uh, especially at uh, the city, Sinai Grace Hospital. And patient rooms were filled with gowns and medical gowns and trash that just left on dirty floors because even the cleaning crews weren't allowed in rooms fearing exposure now at that point emergency room nurses were beyond exhausted all right and this past week things really came to a head hospital administration um, threatened er staff Um, basically the emergency room nursing staff demanded increased staffing, more nurses, uh, because again, you can't care for, you can't have two two nurses caring for 26 patients, and 10 of them are ventilator patients. So, CNN even reported on this. Uh, the headline was Detroit nurses cyanide grace coronavirus, uh, and. Basically, they quoted, quote, the night shift ER nurses at Sinai Grace Hospital refused to leave the break room until hospital administrators brought in more nurses to help out, a physician at the hospital told CNN. And there's another quote, hospital, administrator, quote, hospital administrators decided after four hours of deliberation they would not be, 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 me, be bringing in any more nurses to help and that the nurses could get to work or leave the hospital, the doctor said. The report continues. So one of the nurses there described the confrontation with their bosses quote tonight it was the breaking point for us and that was end quote that was after 3 straight weeks where their ER at Sinai's Grace had over 110 patients and they were at maximum capacity every night quote this is one of the uh, ER nurse Sal Hadwan was quoted as saying Quote, because we cannot safely take care of your loved ones out here with the six, seven nurses and multiple ventilators and multiple people on drips, it's not right. We had two nurses the other day who had 26 patients with 10 ventilators. Sinai Grace Hospital Administration fired back with an official statement that ran on CNN. Quote, this is what the hospital said. We are disappointed that last night a very small number of nurses at Sinai Grace Hospital staged a work stoppage in the hospital, refusing to care for patients. End quote. And that was that quote was from Detroit Medical Center communications manager Jason Barzy, who told this to CNN. Mr. Barzi went on to say, "Quote: Despite this, our patients continue to receive the care they needed as other dedicated nurses step in to provide care." And Again, Mr. Barzi offered no actual proof. And basically what the administrators doing is blaming the nurses, claiming they won't care for patients. But the fact is the nurses were the ones being responsible. Um, the nurses were complaining that quite a few shift nurses were working a 24-hour period because there was such a shortage of vital personnel on either the day or the night crew. Uh, crew. And it should be mentioned that Sinai Grace Hospital is located smack in the middle of Detroit's poorest, hardest-hit Northwest section. So this is a majority black population, and uh, quite a few of the nurses and doctors are also. So the incident, the Michigan Nurses Association weighed in, and they also offered a statement that ran on CNN, quote, eventually a tipping point is reached with the best thing any RN can do for their patients their families, their co-workers, is to speak out rather than remain silent, end quote. And this is basically, these nurses were told to leave because they refused to work under dangerous work conditions. And, you know, they need to stop pressing on irresponsible information. Now, that's number one, because, again, that hospital... Most of their patients, it's in a very poor section of uh, Metro Detroit, majority black, and again, except for Sinai Grace, uh, to some degree, a healthcare desert. The nurses do the best they can. Now we have something from the BBC, and their new show basically told the truth about COVID-19. It's not, as they say, a great leveler. It's not the same COVID-19 for wealthy celebs like, or government people like Boris Johnson or Tom Hanks and his wife as what maybe somebody in Metro Detroit would get. The rich can get the healthcare they need, but regular working people, postal workers, delivery people, store clerks, electricians, medical staff themselves, doctors and nurses themselves, they are not getting what they need. And you know basically this uh, this article calls this the Trump plague, because again, the consequences are not the same for the rich as for the poor again, Tom Hanks and his wife, reader Wilson, they were in Australia, but they received immediate treatment for as Johnson did but you're going to find as they go on here that people, even workers, black workers that have full insurance, couldn't get adequate treatment, and we figured, and so basically i 'm going to the next article from The Root. And the headline is, we figured out why coronavirus is killing black people as if you didn't already know the answer. And this article was written by a journalist named Michael Harriet, And so he describes the stories of some typical black workers. And the first line is, quote, Tamara is, in quotes, essential. All right. So Tamara, um, she doesn't have any medical training. He goes on to explain She's not in law enforcement. She doesn't drive an ambulance. She's not a firefighter, but technically she's considered an emergency responder in Alabama because she's a case manager working for the state of Alabama's Department of Human Resources. And what they found is, is the Department of Human Resources, like what we call family services. So she's a, basically a caseworker, a clerical worker, and her boss, Governor Republican Governor Kay Ivey. Basically, disregarded coronavirus. And even after a co worker tested positive for COVID 19, um, you know, even after that, she didn't, that co worker didn't want to fill out the paperwork. Now, you kind of think, why is that important? Well, black workers, especially if they work for the public sector where they do get a, a fairer shake, they hang on to those jobs for dire, you know, survival. So Tamara's department managers do not hold any medical degrees, um, but they told everybody that there was no reason to quarantine, even if one of the clients that came into the office self-reported as positive for COVID-19. I'm not kidding. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, one of the department's new hires in human, resource, human services in Alabama tested positive. Program managers discovered an employee that was so sick, this employee had been secretly, as they said, quote, throwing up in trash cans. The manager circulated an office-wide email notifying the staff that vomiting at work was, quote, a violation of the work rules for the department, quote, and threatening to take appropriate action if they discovered who the culprit was. That was Tuesday. Amara doesn't know why she's so essential. Uh, there was an inter-office communication that was reviewed by this writer for The Root on March 31st and it cited Jefferson County Department of Human Resources Director Francie Henderson um, who admitted that she had received numerous emails from confused employees but this particular director was waiting for answers from her superiors and a week later an email from the Alabama Department of Human Resources um, basically decided that Tamara and her coworkers were officially exempt from the Families First Coronavirus Protection Act, and that's an act that was designed to protect workers from that virus. And here is what the Alabama Secretary of Labor and State Health Officer had to say about that, quote, all employees of the Alabama Department of Human Resources are emergency responders and therefore exempt from the FFCRA, in other words, the Families First Coronavirus Protection Act. Now, the Human Resources Department staff members were just stunned. They called it, quote, the you'll better bring your ass to work order. So, you know, once again, these workers, Tamara, she's convinced that she's been exposed to, to COVID. Many of their clients are applying either for unemployment or other type benefits. They're low income, chances they were running public transportation, they probably had greater exposure. And Tamara also, you know, told The Root, quote, we are certain that we have been exposed to COVID-19, but we're still being required to come into work or take accrued leave. Now, she's using a, you know, a pseudonym to protect herself. But she went on to say, quote, many of our job functions have been halted for the foreseeable future, and no efforts need to be made to expedite a plan for the remaining departments to work from home and eliminate risk for workers who are part of vulnerable populations. And their functions could be done from home. So, again, you know, when will the governor do what's right? And kept saying, no, you're essential. But not really. Now we have the story of Joyce. Before Governor Ivy issued a very weak stay-at-home order, this order still allowed people of Alabama to go to parks, churches, and gun stores, Joyce lost her job on her day off. She worked for Hobby Lobby. And she had taken a sick day for her annual physical, and that was the same day that Hobby Lobby closed all their stores, according to Business Insider, and sent an email where they furloughed all their employees without pay. So much for family values, right? She went to her medical, her medical appointment, and she saw a doctor at the University of Alabama Medical Center. Now, it should be mentioned that Joyce does not have a car. She takes public transportation. And... Once again, you know, she went grocery shopping, she filled out some job applications, you know, she did the best she could. And then when she got to her medical appointment, quote, she said this, as soon as I got there, they took me into a private room and I was like, ooh, I don't even have to wait like you usually do at the doctor's office. They told me I had high blood pressure, needed blood pressure medicine. Everybody in my family has high blood pressure, was no big whoop. Now she didn't have insurance. And then the nurse told her that Joyce would have to go to a separate clinic in the same UAB network if she wanted the prescription meds for free. And even though those two clinics are part of the same hospital network, um, she still had to go to a different building. Then the nurse told her that Joyce had COVID-19. And Joyce said, quote, I felt like someone punched me in the chest. Uh, Joyce told the root. I don't know if it was from the news or because I was sick. I was coughing so hard I couldn't catch my bat breath, but they still didn't offer. But they still didn't offer me a mask or any protection. So she went across town to Cooper Green Mercy Hospital for her medical appointment. She's coughing nonstop then, and looked trying to get her free medicine. After she walked in, staff realized she needed to be admitted. Um, before admitting her, they told her she better move her car. And she said, no, she didn't drive. And they said, quote, you've been in a car with someone coughing on them all day. Go tell your ride. They need to get checked for coronavirus. Do it right now. And that's when she explained that she didn't have a ride. She rode the bus. So according to the Root, quote, simply reporting that COVID-19 is killing black people is not enough, though. And there are higher coronavirus infection and death rates for black America. So we have to find out why. And this writer for the Root said, Mr. Harriet said, it's a mix of economics medical bias and institutional inequality that leads to health disparities basically if you're poor and especially black your health care will be delayed and are denied so inequality to a phrase lingers in the air just like COVID-19 and the data on COVID-19 shows the disproportionate infectious infection rates and they're not always defined by economic level or geography because when they factor in income and demographics They come to the conclusion that, quote, white supremacy like coronavirus is everywhere, end quote. And so, you know, Tamara, for instance, she's a government worker. She doesn't live in in poverty. She's educated. She has a job. She has health insurance. But she's one of millions of the black working class who just don't have the option of avoiding this disease. And that can be blamed in Alabama on Governor Ivey. And so we have that and then we look at how the universe, excuse me, the University of California Berkeley's labor center called public sector jobs the quote most single most important source of employment for African-Americans which is true and that it's just a place where they have a better chance of getting ahead and but in exchange for some of that Um, I should say job security black workers do expose themselves to many dangers, but especially the danger of apathy, as this writer calls it. Now, there are other non-hate related factors that Mr. Harriet said that contributed to coronavirus spread. Uh, And they include the fact that, you know, economically blacks are more likely to be denied a mortgage or even an auto loan, you know, thus exposing them to public transportation and greater chance of gaining something as highly communicable as as the form of uh, aerosolized COVID-19. They're three times, blacks are three times more likely to ride public transportation, according to Pew Research. They're twice as likely to rent their homes. Um, According to the National Institute of Health, they have greater rates of food insecurities, um, which really necessitate diets that it just exacerbate health problems. A lot of Blacks live in what are called food deserts where they're just you have to go some distance to get to a decent grocery store or a grocery store at all and if you don't drive or don't have a car then trying to take public transportation is very difficult actually. Um, they also blacks have less access to clean water and air and especially in counties like St. John the Baptist Parish, Louisiana which also has the highest rate of cancer due to airborne toxins. Typical white lives in a neighborhood that's 75% white, 8% black. Typical black person's neighborhood is 45% black. And that was according to the U.S. Partnership on Mobility from Poverty. Um, So coronavirus free white people live among the same. Now, the fact also is there are more stats and COVID rates in the black community. According to the Chicago Department of Public Health infection rate among the city's black population is 268 per 100,000 people. That's more than two and a half times the rate of white infections. The Louisiana Department of Health reports that black people make up 70 percent of COVID-19 deaths even though blacks in Louisiana are only 32 percent of the population. Chicago's black fatality rate is six times the white death rate. In New York, COVID-19 fatalities uh, um, among blacks are much higher for every racial group except white and Asian citizens. Now we come to my hometown, St. Louis, the shame of St. Louis. Here in St. Louis, the uh, black-run paper, St. Louis American, as of April 8th, they reported that blacks make up 100% of the COVID-19 fatalities that we have had thus far. I will say that again. Blacks make up 100% of the fatalities from COVID-19 in St. Louis City. And this is just, so you think, why are black people sicker? Well, there's some other reasons for that. Part of it is, yes, they live among a food desert due to segregation patterns, in housing, but they also live in a healthcare desert. And that's something that people don't understand either. If you have to travel across town and take several buses to go from St. Louis City out, you know, maybe 20 miles into the county, it's very difficult. The public transit here in St. Louis is hideous. And healthcare is more expensive. It's harder to acquire. And harder to keep among that community and all these underlying causes of course rather create death uh, and then look at St. John, the Brown, excuse me, St. John the Baptist Parish in Louisiana not only has the highest cancer rate in the country they have the highest COVID-19 death rate among blacks in the country even though once again blacks are only 32% of the population so Mr. Harry is I'll quote him. He says, yes, white supremacy is a pre-existing condition also. So part of the problem for the disparity is that we didn't do enough to stop the spread. And that comes from the top, not just from Trump, but in every community. We just didn't. And Mr. Harriet used a, a quote that is very common in the black community. Quote, when America catches a cold, the rest is not essential, like us. End quote. Now, I get Back down to this, um, we also have a column called The Racial Time Bomb and the COVID-19 Crisis by Charles Blow, who's one of my favorite journalists, actually, and he talks about how, about this discrepancy as well. Um, basically, the virus is more likely to be fatal to blacks and to other minorities and to recent migrants than to whites, middle-class whites, and... This is something that is inexcusable. Um, We have a racial disparity in prior health conditions here in the U.S. Bloomberg reported um, about a study of deaths in Italy, quote, almost half the victims suffered from at least three prior in Italy, three prior illnesses, and about a fourth had either one or two previous conditions, wherein 75% had high blood pressure, 35% diabetes, and a third suffered from heart disease, end quote. and once again, blacks and Hispanics often live in food deserts and health care deserts. And this is something that is very reminiscent of what happened in the early days of the HIV epidemic. Um, and so I'm going to read something. The concerns of Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Ayanna Presley, and they wrote a letter to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services The CDC is currently failing to collect and publish report on the racial ethnic demographic information of patients tested for and affected by COVID-19. Our concerns echo those from some physicians that decisions to test individuals um, may may be more vulnerable to the implicit biases that every patient and medical professional carry around with them, potentially causing black communities and other underserved groups to disproportionately miss out on getting tests for COVID-19. And they went on, although COVID-19 does not discriminate along racial or ethnic lines, existing racial disparities and inequities in health outcomes and health care access may mean that the nation's response to preventing and mitigating its harms will not be felt equally in every community. Uh, and so I agree with that totally. You know, in conclusion, racism is a disease that has raged in the USA since its inception. Those whites who view the sins of racism as before their time are somehow solved if communities of color were willing to lift themselves up by the bootstraps fail to see that their myopic worldview is inherently racist. It is virtually impossible to pull yourself up by the bootstraps if those prerequisite bootstraps are kept an economic ocean away from your reach. The sins of racism go far beyond the systemic denial of equal economic and educational opportunity. Rather, they pervade every aspect of life on this planet. And in the context of this report, the sins of racism extend to far more deleterious medical outcomes for blacks than for their white counterparts. This allegation is not hyperbole, but is supported by a wealth of data collected over several decades nationwide. Now, all of us face the deadly COVID 19 viral pneumonia scourge. And in my hometown of St. Louis, of which, yes, Ferguson is an inner ring suburb, every single COVID fatality has been black. The local black owned newspaper, the St. Louis American, covered this disgraceful turn of events. And even Newsweek covered this travesty of justice. And we are speaking of justice when there is an unequal distribution of health care dollars. Providers and services based on race and monetary level. The shameful truth is that many black many blacks in the US live in what can only be called food deserts and now healthcare deserts. These neighborhoods are cut off from adequate access to nutritious food and adequate and timely access to health care. The local TV news and local corporate paper have conveniently ignored this foul disgrace. Like AIDS and HIV before this, the COVID killer strikes the poor and the neglected, in this case, the black community, far more severely than those who can afford concierge medicine or those who have some leeway with employers. So this is not a disease that discriminates. This is a society that does. The COVID-19 that struck wealthy actors like Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, is not the same COVID as that which struck minimum wage workers and communities of color. This isn't celebrity covid this is the viral mirror on our utterly dysfunctional medical system based on profit and our vir- and on our viral systemic racism. Or as root journalist Michael Harriet put it, once again, when America catches a cold, the rest is not essential like us, end quote. And the only thing I have to say to that is amen. And that's my report, and I would just add that this is something that we see throughout the United States. And even if there are people out there that don't give a wit about racism, though they should, the fact is the high communicable rate of this disease, their own sense of self-preservation should kick in. By failing to treat people in all communities equally when it comes to this killer they're actually ensuring that this is going to continue. Right. And this and not continue. So this is, as I got more and more into it, it was unbelievable. And when I saw the statistic, and I found out about the St. Louis statistic by accident on Facebook when a friend of mine published, uh, put out a post about that. And she had a few sources And her, she was also a Ferguson, um, Uh, veteran and she goes by the nickname of mama cat and she supplied food for everybody who was out there. God bless her soul. Um, The the fact is this should have been something that every news outlet in St. Louis and throughout Missouri should have been talking about. And they weren't. They just didn't
1: care. Wow. Well, and (laughs) This this goes along with what I was reporting on, too, because it it's like we might as well have different forms of the virus because of the way that we're responding to it. And so the response is having uh, uh, much different consequences depending on what the population is. Um, yeah. While yeah. we were it, talking it we about a... Uh, uh, alert that uh, the US registers uh, 1,514 COVID deaths in the past 24 hours. Um, yeah. That's according okay, to Johns Hopkins University. And so, and that doesn't include people who weren't hospitalized. So, you know, people are dying from this who right. couldn't go to the hospital. So right. again, Janine, thank you so much for this uh uh wonderful report. It's very timely and synced up uh we didn't plan it this way, but it synced up really nice with what I was doing. And yeah. uh we'll carry on with this next week. We'll see what happens and and bring yeah. some more I'm gonna be light di- to this.
0: I'm gonna be I'm gonna be discussing Trump's legal problems that he will have. Because okay. he is guilty of negligence on the side. Okay.
1: All right, you okay. guys. 10 seconds till the end. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Janine. And we will see everyone Bye. next Sunday. Bye. Bye.